0: When we uh, look back at great preachers and uh, missionaries of the past, it's difficult to imagine, isn't it, of them doing anything else. Take John Calvin, for example. He was so instrumental in the reformation of the church, and he preached in the 1520s, 30s, uh, about five, maybe six, seven times a week, leading uh, the reformation in mainland Europe from Geneva, and to a great degree, the reformation also here. But this great man of God, you imagine him is so willing, so, so eager to get out there and preach, uh, but he was a man who just loved to sit in his study. In his commentary on Psalms, Calvin speaks a, of this zealous man, as he calls him, a name called Pharaoh, um, who heard of Calvin's reluctance to come out of his study. And this is what Calvin writes of that uh, meeting. Upon this, Pharaoh, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. And after having learnt that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation, uh, basically like a curse in some ways, uh, that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. He says, by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Basically, he got out of his study and started preaching. Calvin admits that he was a very timid man, very bashful. Uh, All he wanted to do was get in his books. Standing up in front of people was completely the last thing he wanted to do. But he, like many in history... And many today responded to the call of God's word over and above their own comfort. Our passage is aimed at someone very similar today, Timothy. And uh, yes, it's primarily aimed at Timothy, this passage that we've just heard, but also anyone else is in Timothy's role in pastoral ministry and teaching in the church, but don't think it doesn't apply to all of us in one sense. Because all of us if we're Christians here today, are heralds of God's word. We must be able to bear witness to the truth. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must make it known. And Paul has been passing on throughout this letter, in a sense, the baton to to Timothy, his co-worker, his beloved son. And Paul is sitting in chains in this damp, dark prison cell, probably days away from being executed, we think. His body is cold, but look at his heart. It burns. It's like red hot, isn't it? He longs for Timothy to continue. Now, he knows the struggles. The church in Ephesus was a complete mess. He loves the church. He'd established the church. He loves Timothy he's his dear son. He loves the gospel, that good deposit, which he's entrusted to Timothy. Uh, And this chapter, probably Paul's last known writings before he dies. Uh, Can I just... Know the importance of these words. Feel the kind of the solemn power within what he's writing here, and, and, and to be honest, be stirred by the raw emotion of Paul's last words. Because look at them. Within them, we see this charge to Timothy. Look at verse two. The end of verse one, verse two. It says, "I give you this charge." Paul says, "Preach the word." Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. One big charge. Preach the word. Preach your, You might say that's like, herald the word. Basically, proclaim it aloud. See, that the mechanism, if you like, the delivery is really clear, isn't it? The word is to be preached. Which, as we've seen before in the letter, in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 15, that means the word that must be correctly handled. Timothy has received it straight from Paul. And now he's to essentially give it to straight. Not obscuring the word, uh, not modifying the word. Timothy is to preach the word. And he knew exactly what that meant. He knew exactly what he had to preach the word was that look at the words that it, even within this letter it's that good deposit which has been received from paul in chapter one it's the of sound doctrine you see that in verse three of our passage today it's the truth of verse four it's the faith of verse seven in our passage it's the scriptures that were diligently taught to him by his grandmother and his mother back in chapter one timothy is to preach the word he has to believe it He has to obey it. He must guard it. We've seen he's like to suffer for it. He's to continue in it, as we saw in chapter 3. And now, chapter 4, he has to preach it. He has no liberty, does he? He can't invent a message himself or modify the truth. He is not to preach himself, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the salvation of those who listen and put their faith in him. I always remember as a, as a kid, I used to play quite a lot of cricket. I used to traipse up from, I used to live in Sheffield, in kind of South of Yorkshire, I used to go up to, to Leeds, the kind of centre of all cricket in the whole world. Um, no, and uh, there I was in the nets, and uh, this rather arrogant ex-England cricket captain, now a rather obnoxious cricket competitor, used to be my kind of batting coach. And there he was, uh, just mumbling away, shouting at me most of the time, just saying, Let the bat do the work. I could never really understand him because he had a really broad Yorkshire accent. But it was like, let bat do work, or something like that. But there we were. Do the work. Let the bat do the work. See, when you play cricket, the best shots, you can't force it. You Just let the bat do the work. That provides the power. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, let the word, let the word do the work. Preach the word, Timothy. And this is, in a sense, the the main thing of anyone's ministry. Of all the instructions that follow, they serve that main aim. And imagine Timothy for a moment, if you can. He's timid by nature. The thought of standing up and proclaiming the gospel in such a hostile place, especially like in Ephesus, in the church there, it would have been so daunting well, look at Paul's next instructions. They absolutely nail Timothy, don't they? Think of his natural reluctance. What does he do? He must be prepared in season and out of season. He must correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Let's just waltz through some of those. First, he must be prepared in season and out of season. He's not just to go and preach when he's ready or when the time feels good for him. How often do we make excuses when the opportunity comes up to talk to our friends about Jesus? Timothy's to be ruthless. There must be a persistence to preaching the word. It doesn't matter how he feels. He must be prepared. And he must put hard work in, into understanding the word, to be able to explain it simply. That's what preparation looks like sharing the gospel with our friends, with our colleagues, with our neighbours, requires preparation. None of us, none of this, none of this comes naturally to any of us. We've Got to be prepared. It says correct, rebuke and encourage. Now, it's true that some seem to enjoy, don't they, correcting and rebuking. And actually, unfortunately, sometimes preaching can be an attractive option for that kind of person so they can be heard it is a difficult balance though for those who preach who who kind of teach because if you cannot correct and rebuke well you're neglecting your ministry but if you do it too much you probably need to give up and find another job now what is correcting? it's showing people they're wrong even harder, rebuking it's saying you're wrong and stop it neither are popular are they in a pluralistic and relativistic culture but both are essential. But both also must be balanced with that last one. Encouragement. That is, when we're preaching we're, uh, and heralding God's word to one another and to others, then we must be able to come alongside that person and not threaten them, not lecture them, not look down our noses at them. Encourage them. And all of this requires what? Patience, he says. And spade loads of it. And that's the charge. Preach the word. Yes, primarily it's aimed at Timothy. But if we are Christians here today, we must not ignore our responsibility. You are likely to live next door to to people who may never hear the good news of Jesus unless you open your mouth. You likely work in close proximity to many people who may never hear how to be saved for the glories of heaven unless you are prepared with great patience to make known the gospel of Christ. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, if that wasn't enough... Paul uh, surrounds that charge in verse 2 uh, with three motivating scenes to stir Timothy and us, I guess, to action as well. I've put it in this order, so you're going kind to of see the three scenes that surround it together. Firstly, we're going to go back to verse 1. He sets this charge to preach the word and in the context we see here of the coming Christ. Look back at verse 1 with me, if you can. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... Who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, he then gives his charge. See, Paul begins reminding Timothy that he doesn't give this charge to preach with his own authority. He does so how? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. What's Paul doing here? Paul is literally like turning up the heat, isn't he? In the most awesome way, Timothy is is then given three realities about Jesus to help him. Consider that present charge to preach. Look at the first. We see that Christ is the one who will judge. You see, whatever lies ahead for you or I and for Timothy, we will need to give an account for each moment of our lives. Yes, of course, Jesus has saved those who follow him through his death and resurrection. He's now enthroned as king and also judge. Now, nothing that we do today, tomorrow, and throughout this week will be able to save us. We can only trust in what Jesus has done. That is what saves us, as his life is counted to us. But we all, including Timothy, will need to give an account of how we've responded to that salvation we know in Christ. So Christians live in the light of that judgment. And that happens when Jesus, we see, secondly, he appears. And what a day that will be. Jesus will return, he will appear, and we will rejoice. How long for? Eternity. It just keeps going. And we look forward to that moment and we live in light of that moment. Why? Because when Jesus appears, he will judge. And he will bring perfect justice to this broken world. But for us as Christians, he will then bring in his kingdom. That last The coming Christ is the one who will consummate his kingdom. It will all come, it will bring come to its end. The eternity will begin. See, that eternal, perfect kingdom that Christ proclaimed when he walked this earth, that beautiful restored Eden that he inaugurated through his death and resurrection, we now live and serve Christ now, but we look longing for that day. We live longing for that time. And this is the perspective Timothy must keep if he is to preach the word. This will keep him, this will motivate him and protect his heart and mind from the worries and the concerns of the church in Ephesus. And I think we would do well, wouldn't we, to keep such a perspective? It's so easy, isn't it, to shift our gaze from the eternity uh, to come, uh, secured in Christ, to the insecurity of tomorrow and the years to come. See, if we're to live in obedience to Christ and honour Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, we must live in the light of the coming Christ and we must long for his return. That's the first perspective that uh, Paul gives for his charge. The second comes in verses 3 and 4 and I've put that down in your sheets, as the contemporary Ephesus. We could easily say the contemporary London in some ways. Look at verse 3 and 4. For a time will come when the people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. It's so easy, isn't it, to read stuff like this and think, that's back in antiquity. You know, it's easy to think that the indifference and increasing hostility towards the Christian faith. In our secular society, it's just something new or something right back there. No, it's always been. It's always been like this. Throughout all ages, people have turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and pushed God to one side. Even within the stories of the Bible, for example, a generation of generation of people turn their backs on God. Let me take you to one place. Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah 5. Listen to the prophet. He says, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. This is God's land, God's people. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And people love it that way. People love it that way. Pushing God to one side, it's always been. Think of the parable of the sower and all the parable of the four soils, whichever you want to put It, it says the same thing. And this is true for Timothy in Ephesus as it is true for us today in London. As we preach the word, as we dare to open the mouths and speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen? There will be many who never respond positively to that good news. That Jesus has opened up the way to heaven if we put our faith in him. The contemporary scene in Ephesus could very easily have put Timothy off, couldn't it? You'd have been tempted to change the message to make the gospel more appealing, more easy to, to kind of just live out. And so many people do that today, don't they? Because it's easy to teach and it's very easy, isn't it, to listen to a gospel. Can you imagine if I stood up here and said, oh, yeah. yeah, following Jesus, you don't have to take up your cross and follow him. Let's, let's, just, go, let's just go for a, kind of an easier way, shall we? Oh, and by the way, yeah, being a Christian doesn't involve any kind of kind of self-sacrifice whatsoever. You do, you know, lead your life just as you wish whatsoever. It's fine. It's very easy to say. It's very easy to listen to. People will always turn away from the truth, whatever place and whatever time. And that is why we must preach the word, undiluted unashamed leaving god to work in the hearts of those who hear and timothy is charged to preach the word and his first motivation yes is the coming christ but his second is the contemporary Ephesus. he's saying hey let god do the work all you need to do is preach you don't need to save that's god's job just preach just open your mouths and speak of the glories of the lord jesus The third, let's go to that. It's far more personal, and to be honest, it is utterly mind-blowing. Because the third motivation for for Timothy to (coughs) preach the word is Paul himself. As I've put down on your outlines, the chained apostle. Before I read these verses again, let's just think about the circumstances from which Paul is writing this. He's about to be executed, and he knows it. He's in chains, uh, and, and we're talking a jail that makes Wandsworth Prison look like a five-star hotel. He is cold, he is lonely, he longs for mental stimulation, reading, as we'll see in next week's passage. And despite all of that, where's he looking? Where is his heart This is perhaps, I think, probably the most moving section of all of Paul's letters. And I think we have a lot to learn here. Let's uh, look at verse 6 with me. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If I'm honest, my big regret this week is that we didn't give a week for these three verses. Uh, But in the time that we have left, note that the chained apostle uh, close to death motivates Timothy to preach the word. And he looks at his present reality first in verse 6. And then he looks back to his past, in verse 7, then to his glorious future. Let's take each in turn. Verse 6, firstly, the present. Two things here I think we see. Paul is dying, and he's also departing. And he takes this image, doesn't he, of being poured out like a glass of wine at the foot of an altar, which would have been a kind of sacrificial uh, offering of a lamb there. And he's using that image to describe his life. His life has been poured out as an offering to God. He uses the same image uh, when he writes to the church in Philippi as well. Then, interestingly though, he, u- he uses that hypothetically. Here it's a reality. He uses a, a particular tense to show that. Simply, he uses what's called the progressive present to show that his life has been and will, as the final drops are poured out, it will be given as an offering to God. His last drops of blood were about to fall, and he knew it. But he'd given everything his life, his intelligence, his money, his absolute everything had been poured out in the service of God. It's interesting, isn't it? He also speaks of his departure. It's a lovely little word being used here. He doesn't speak of death, he speaks of departure. It's a phrase which you'd often use if you imagine a boat uh, tied up on a, um, on a little dock there and the, and the ropes coiled around those those bits of metal, the ories, and what are they called? Anyway, uh, I completely lost that. The departure, the what? Oh, don't worry. Uh, it, the departure word is, is that of. A boat going out on a voyage to somewhere greater, to explore. That's how it's used in literature. Paul is simply, what is, what is he doing? Yes, he's about to be executed, but he's, he's lifting the anchor, if you like. He's uh, hoisting the sails. He's, he's <coughs> get, get it, setting sail to a new and better place. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his last of his books in the Narnia series, uh, The Last Battle, Uh, puts it this way, and I think this is really helpful and lovely. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Paul is departing to be with his Lord and his Saviour, and he knew that that was better by far, as he said in a number of other places. Paul looked at his present circumstances and he looked at his impending death and all he could see, that oh, he's not looking down, is he? he's not looking at his chains, he's looking to the voyage ahead. He's looking that his, his life has been poured out, he's given everything. There's nothing left and he's just looking forward to that moment. He's done his bit. And this isn't a man looking for an easy option out, is he? giving up when things are tough no look at in verse 7 look at what he'd endured for the sake of christ he now looks back in verse 7 i fought the the good fight i finished the race i've kept the faith and as i said we we sang at the beginning that hymn didn't we it speaks of the armor of god we studied in our small groups together in ephesians 6 and paul says i have fought the good fight and you want to say with him yes you have with all that armor from ephesians 6 you can imagine his belt of truth, that leather belt of the truth of the gospel. It's probably so worn and, and It's, it's has some stab marks as well for all the fights that he's been in. But it's there, holding everything up. You've got that breastplate of righteousness, which has probably been dented and battered from all the battles he's been through. But he's held fast with the righteous life of Christ, which has covered him. And by faith, he was absolutely invincible from any spear or arrow that would uh, come his way. His boots, the gospel of peace, meant that he just could not be moved. His shield of faith was worn and battle-scarred. His helmet of salvation was probably dented, but it was not broken. He knew he was saved. And his sword, that most wonderful offensive weapon, that cuts through the heart of thousands because it was the word of truth. Paul had stood in front of courts, of synagogues, and rioting crowds. He'd had people buying for, buying for his buying for his blood the whole way. He'd been stoned. He'd shipwrecked. His life was just suffering after suffering after suffering as he'd taken the gospel out. He was so brave. He'd faced such abuse. And what a joy to get to the end of your life and say, "I fought the good fight." He'd also finish the race, he says. Very particular words are being used there. He's finished the course that's been set for him and him alone. He doesn't boast about winning here, does he? Just finishing. And each one of us has that unique, God-ordained course to run. Some of us will have short runs, some of us will have long runs, Some of us will have very hilly, difficult runs. Some of us will have much more flat, easy runs. All different, all unique. And we can all finish our race. And that is what Paul has done. Finally, he's kept the faith. He's guarded the faith. He's kept the faith. He's preached it and lived it out. At work, at home, everywhere. And Timothy reads these words, looking over his shoulder at those who oppose him in the gospel in Ephesus He sees Paul's in prison and you can imagine the picture being conjured up in his mind as as he looks back to Paul, there's a stench of failure, isn't there, about Paul's circumstances. There's a stench of death because it's just around the corner and yet as Paul recalls that he has fought and finished and he has kept, the only stench is the victory of Christ. Now he looks to the future, verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It's really interesting, isn't it, that Paul looks forward and he doesn't see a crown of glory. Oh, that will come. First and foremost, though, there is the crown of righteousness. Because it's the one thing that you or I, Paul, Timothy, whoever we are, is the one thing that we can't earn. And we can never get on our own, can we? Oh, we can get some glory, but we can never be righteous in our own, of our own strength. We need the righteousness of Christ. And that is what we get when we put our faith in him. It is credited to all who believe. But now this picture is so much greater because now he's saying he will get the ultimate crown, which is not just a crediting of righteousness, it is righteousness. He becomes fully and completely, eternally righteous, made perfect, like God. And as Paul sits in his dark, cold cell, his gaze is not on his chains, but on the glories of eternity to come and the crown that is waiting for him. Look at verse 8, how it finishes. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing... He describes Christians as those who long for the appearing of Christ. And it's why we pray, it's why the Bible finishes, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Because we know that if, if Christ appears, uh, it is better by far. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, doesn't matter how wealthy you are how poor you are, it is better by far for every single one of us if Christ comes now. And what is in store for Paul awaits for those who long for Christ to appear. Christians, there is a crown waiting for you. And to the to the degree that you get that, and to the degree that you let that melt your heart, it will motivate you, as it will do Timothy, to preach the word. It would be very easy to waltz through a passage like this, and yes, maybe be moved, but there must be more, and there is for timothy and this is where we end paul would have clearly moved timothy as he recalls all of these things but he calls him to distinct gospel focused living and yes it's in the middle of a passage but i want to end it with it if you can verse five but you he says that is but you be distinct keep your head in all situations endure hardship do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Keep your head literally be sober, be cool. Endure hardship. Don't think that proclaiming the Lord Jesus will be pain free. And do the work of the evangel- of an evangelist. That is make sure that the gospel is on your lips. And it will only be on your lips if it's in your heart and if it's in your mind. Lastly, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That is, there isn't anything here that you can miss out. And what about you and me? If you stick to the things that you're comfortable with, how useful will you be? Timothy was probably squirming away as he read this, hoping for some clause, some get-out, where he could excuse himself, shrink back into his study like Calvin longed for. But no. Nothing like that came. Instead, he got motivation after motivation, reality after reality, of the coming Christ of the contemporary Ephesus to the chained apostle. I think the question to finish with is this. Will you, will I, discharge all the duties of our ministry? Let's preach the word. Let's pray.